All right, all right, all right. Go ahead, Stanton. Um, that was a good introduction. Um, I'll just remind people once again that we're, we're talking about narratives, which is how people interpret information that's out there in the world. We believe in reality. It, to get technical, you and I are logical positivists. We believe that data tell us something. At the same time, we believe that people's interpretation of reality is all important. It determines how they react to life, how they feel, whether they become addicted, um, and certainly how they see and talk about the world. And so one current example that everybody refers to is the alternative, alternative reality is a term that appears constantly on progressive news. And what that refers to is they'll show scenes of people being beat up, police officers being beat up on January 6th in Washington and Republicans saying, well, that didn't happen or it was just a friendly engagement or whatever they'll say. And progressives feel relaxed, of which I am on mainly, uh, relaxed in making that statement. But what we're saying is there's a larger reality in there where um, alternative reality actually could be used to describe how all of us see the world. Every human being has their version of reality. <clears throat> we would say some are more accurate and useful than others, but how people look at the world is their world and they're allowed to see the world that way. I mean, they're not allowed to break laws and beat up policemen, but they see the world that way. And we're often shocked at their reality, which is a naivete in terms of psychology. So I'm, I've written a memoir, which Zach and I have talked about and will continue to talk about, called A Scientific Life on the Edge, my lonely trek, not quest to change how we see addiction. I reviewed a couple of recent biographies, memoirs, and they both have things that if you sort of say to people, they would say, well, that's not right. That's not allowable. And they've had gotten some kickback on it. And it's a, amusing is the wrong word. It's interesting to see how these realities clash and there's no resolution. So I'll start with Matthew McConaughey has written, um, a memoir, um, and he told stories about his life that he thought he'd be ashamed about. And you might say, well, you know, is it something bad he's done? And he's sort of almost ashamed to describe his reality. And that came out, um, he was interviewed by Willie Geist, who's a person who's written his own memoir called Good Talk Dad. He, his father is a man named Bill Geist, who's a media guy. And I believe he developed uh, Parkinson's. So there's a kind of a, you know, traumatic aspect to it, you know, late in his life. But Willie Geist is a privileged person and a very sophisticated thinker. He's not somebody that falls prey to, well, everybody thinks this way. His father was in the media. He's a very smart man. Um, his sister, Libby Geist, 
Wilds um, was the producer for OJ Made in America and Last Dance, which is the story of uh, Michael Jordan's career. So there's nobody more sophisticated than that. And he interviewed uh, Matthew McConaughey on the Today Show. And um, I'm not a Matthew, Matthew McConaughey is talking about running for governor of Texas. I assume he'd be improvement, but I don't know anything about his politics. He used to be a shirtless rom-com guy, and then he sort of became an Academy Award type guy. And I admire anybody who stretches themselves. I still wouldn't say I was a great fan of his, but I love True Detective with Woody Harrelson, where he sort of played a chain-smoking alcoholic who was just gaunt with anxiety and life. And they had to have a happy sort of ending. And I like happy endings and he got better, but they sort of eventually played that down. But in an interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper, um, the actor spoke about building on the lessons from his father and other stories from his new memoir, Green Lights. And his father was extremely encouraging to him. And he just says, uh, Matthew McConaughey was supposed to go to law school. And when he told his father he wasn't going to go to law school, his father just had some advice for him, don't half-ass it. Matthew McConaughey's father beat him with a belt. And um, maybe his mother too, or maybe she was just complicit. That came out, and Willie, we're back to Willie Geis now. Willie Geis almost couldn't believe it. And what he couldn't believe it is that Matthew McConaughey, I, we're not approving of any form of beating children. We're not saying it should be tolerated or that anybody should accept it. But um, the actor refused to put himself down and um, Although, this is a quote from People Magazine, his parents' behavior toward him might be considered abuse, but McConaughey himself doesn't see it that way. So, you know, what do you do with that information? I, and I'm almost tempted to make, well, I'll make a joke. <clears throat> they should have had Gabor Mate interview him. Yeah. Gabor Mate finds that people have suffered abuse and have become drug addicts because they were mildly bullied at school and they didn't tell their parents. McConaughey was beaten with a belt, maybe a belt buckle. I don't want to exaggerate the crime. I believe his father's dead now, but he still talks to his mother. I had that same thought, you know. I was thinking, well, what if Gabor interviewed him? And it's almost like he responded as though Gabor did interview him because he said, but as you said at the top, people have the right to their own interpretation of what happened to them, whether it's positive or negative and whether something was felt abusive or not. And there's one other step in that. To get it, we've often spoke, to get into the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, two things have to appear. Um, you have to be dysfunctional. You have to, you know not be able to deal with the world and you have to be distressed. You know, and Matthew McConaughey is a beyond successful human being. 
I mean, and he has a family, he has children. And naturally, he says he would never touch his children. <clears throat> that whole, in fact, he's an example of somebody who says, well, I learned from that experience that that's just a bad way to go. Yeah. He's processed it. And so, you know, you could, and he, not a drug addict or an alcoholic, and he's one of those people who once seems to be uh, destined to be married to one person his whole life. You know, you can make up that he's distressed and dysfunctional, but by the time you get down to that level, well, you really work, A, you're working hard, and B, uh, when you go that, dig that deep, every human being on the planet would qualify. He's not, he took the good with the bad. He decided that being hit was bad. It didn't feel good, but it didn't destroy his relationship with his family, and it didn't make him unsuccessful it doesn't lead to impairment or distress he raises a family he's a good person he's a pro social person he makes hits he has wealth he seems to be well-minded i mean he wrote this memoir that was really insightful whether you agree with things his basic premises or not so right and i want to just say in this day and age i'm stunned by his bravery that True. he would reveal that and and he was trepidatious about doing it He's got guts. So he, like you were saying, um, nothing about his childhood made him repeat it, which is another sort of Gabor Mate thing that is uh, transgenerational, this, these kinds of things that happen and they're, they're sort of stored away somewhere in your subconscious, very Freudian, and sort of stored away somewhere in your subconscious and you're bound to repeat it. Uh, I, I don't see signs of that. And it's interesting that he stepped out and spoke so clearly about that. He's, uh, you know, you he's the guy on a pedestal for transgenerational trauma. You would just say, well, Gabor Mate. Yeah. yeah. Not him. And he's once again, the vast majority of people who've had those experiences don't repeat them with their own families. So now I want to turn to, and I mean, um, you know, I like reading narratives and memoirs. So I read, one by Quinta Brunson, she meet, called She Memes Well. Do you know what she means when she says memes? Do you know what that term refers to? In yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not the Richard Dawkins type propagation of information meme exactly, but uh, she, she had, she was on this reality sort of TV kind of stuff, or maybe she was just kind of filming herself on social media and it went viral and people made visual memes out of it. You know, this quotes from her, applied to some kind of a picture that made, got her even more famous. Well, and she makes memes herself. They're brief couple minute things that she releases. Oh, okay. so, um, and the most famous one is, ooh, he got money. I, I actually remember that. I remember that becoming famous. And <laughs> I mean, when you see it, she's playing, she's in her thirties, I believe. She looks like a young woman. She's yeah. very small and she's on a date and the guy's, it's kind of conceptual art. Yeah. And in real life, she says something like, well, I've never actually been on a date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the whole joke uh, is that she's... that is, I've never had a good date. Exactly, yeah, right. And so she, the guy pays for a ticket and he buys two goodies, like popcorn and soda. And every time then she looks in the camera and goes, oh, he's got money. 
<laughs> and it's kind of, you know, it's not exactly a joke. <laughs> and it depends on her character. And um, so she's kind of a genius. <laughs> and part of her genius comes from, like, where does she come from? And I have a strange bumping up against her. I, I'm a million years older than her. But I went, I'm from Philadelphia, and I lived in, I've used the term, the lily white Northeast Philadelphia. And I went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is in West Philadelphia. She grew up in West Philadelphia. And I lived in Black Bay. University of Pennsylvania now controls all of West, yeah, it's an exaggeration. They've really, when I went there, the University of Pennsylvania campus was quite small. And I lived in Pountain Village in West Philadelphia in Black neighborhoods. So I, you know, I wouldn't take any credit for any of that. It was okay with me and, you know, seemed to be okay with it, the people I lived with. And so you, um, I learned what her life was like years later in that. And I just want to talk about her emergence from her background. I, and so I'm going to quote some things from her book, forgive me. I often see people invest more energy into their jobs or partners or hair than their friends who are with them before those jobs, partners and hair. My 15 and 20 year old friendships have taken work. They take heart to hearts, wine and time. Mm. So, you know, already you like her. She's still friends with her girlhood friends in West Philadelphia. Some of them are like, I think one's a doctor and some of them are in West Philadelphia. And one thing that's sort of important here is the wine. You know, she's like me and you. When she gets together with her girlfriends from 15 or 20 years ago, they have some wine and tacos. I don't know. And that's actually a significant statement in her life because her mother was a Jehovah's Witness. And her mother's brother, she had two brothers, one of who died of alcohol and one of drugs. And her mother wouldn't approve of anything she did drinking being one among the list and among other things she couldn't go away to college and so her mother you know she thought well she's already aware of what she wanted to be which was sort of a comedian and and you know maybe a social media person although that wasn't kind of created exactly mm. and um <clears throat> let's jump to the present my mom and i chat on the phone every day almost every day. Our conversations range from reasons why the president at the time is an idiot to whether or not she thinks my period is normal, what rerung of the King of Queens she just watched. We're all over the place. So, you know, that's a mom and a daughter. They don't, you know. Um, but that wasn't the way things started when she came up. Through the years, my mom was never shy to state her opinion. You should not wear that spaghetti strap tank top out in public. It's showing far too much skin. But when I was younger, I was able to ignore it. Okay, got it. Bye, mom. I'd yell back at her. She'd inevitably respond, don't get smart, which would get me to shut up. Don't get smart in Norma Jean Brunson language means if you say one more word, you get smacked. So once again, the ugly, she doesn't, Brunson doesn't make any point about this. She came up, I guess, in an environment where that was reality. So while she's at Temple, she becomes involved with, uh, you know, uh, improvisational art, which is kind of what she does now. 
And so, you know, she had her, her mother drove her somewhere and she was criticized where she's, she's going to be with people, some of whom are men. And her mother's running her down. Are you serious? And finally, she's in college now. I, I would, maybe she's an adult. Well, she's over 18. Maybe she's over 21. Are you seriously talking about my earrings right now, mom? You know me, you know me. You're my mother. You know, I'm a good kid. I mean, she's, she's basically kind of a nerd, except she's nerdy about comedy. You have to trust the person you made. Just because I don't dress in the way you want doesn't mean I'm a whore or whatever you think of me. You've been criticizing every single thing about me lately, picking apart my hair, my clothes, my interests. So she waited until whatever age that was, 21. And she just said, mom, this can't go on. You know what I mean? Uh, I love you and you love and respect me. And you kind of know me, I'm, you know, she didn't actually, she, she didn't know all about her and what she, any extra things she would have known would have made her feel more that way. But she's sort of saying, you know, hands off mom. <clears throat> The simple exchange was our way of saying, I love you and I'll always love you, even when you're pissing me off. That fight ended as quickly as it started. From that day on, my mom thought twice before commenting on my appearance and bringing up her concerns with my behavior. Thinking about everything the world had taken from my mom and how she didn't want it to take me too made my heart break for her. She didn't cry in the car because I was disobeying her. She cried because she was scared I was going to follow in the footsteps of her siblings. So that's a thing you and I talk about, you know, it's transgenerational. Her mother grew up with, in a environment, her mother's a teacher and a Jehovah's Witness. She took a straight and narrow path and she had brothers who didn't and they suffered for it. And she's looking at her daughter and her daughter's not a Jehovah's Witness. She's not going to become a teacher. She said, mom, I'm smart enough to be a teacher, but I'm not. We cited uh, Angela Ducks Duckworth's book, Grit, in our book a lot and mainly because I had been fresh off of reading it and thought, wow, this really is, captures it. Um, Angela Duckworth, of course, is a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, works alongside Marty Seligman. And in her so book- back in Philadelphia, although I wonder where she lives, but go on. Yeah, I, I, was, I do wonder where she lives too. But she, was ta she talked about, there's this uh, vague formula that however you can get it, it works best if you can be a parent to a child who is both strict and serious and has high expectations while at the same time supportive. And those two can seem to kind of contradict, but there are ways to meld the, the two into one sort of streamlined relationship with your kid. And it sounds like this is just, that's just kind of what parents want to do. They're trying to strike that balance. And it sounds like there's some way that this mother was trying to strike that balance with it. They had a form of communication that was not, it wasn't uh, what do you call it? Like an overt communication style of saying, I love you. I support you. I want the best for you. And at the same time, they piss each other off. And it's because the mother had very high expectations, certain particular expectations of this kid. So it's not perfect. I mean, you wouldn't write that up in the template about how to parent, but it kind of covers the bases one way or another. And in a more basic way, she was the youngest <clears throat> of five children and she was funny. You know, <laughs> right. She did imitations starting when she was five or six and everybody in the family got around and laughed at her and they've attended every one of her shows. So when you say supportive, 
it was more than her mother just talking to her. Right. The family was into her. You know, they were, she got hyped. So <clears throat> let's move forward. She's, she drinks and takes drugs, which is the point I want to make. I, we talked last week about Mayer. And there's a goal some people have of eliminating alcohol and drugs from the earth, from people's lives. And she doesn't even talk about eliminating drugs. I mean, drugs and alcohol are just part of her life. After, so, and so is sex. And uh, these are things that are, you know, most people don't talk to their parents about. But she really couldn't talk to it about with her mother. And so her first affair was a guy who was sort of an old boyfriend who became an old friend who she became intimate with. And then he broke up with her. He moved to Chicago to go to some kind of school. And she would save money and fly to see him and make up some elaborate story. I mean, she wasn't telling her mother what she was doing. And he broke up with her. And now we're hearkening back. This is kind of a unifying podcast you really think love is addictive? Do you really think that's possible? And my answer to that is it's the worst addiction. After he broke up with her, I fell into a deep depression. At the time, I didn't really have depression in my vocabulary. So I didn't know what I was dealing with. Nowadays, there are healthier dialogues around mental health. But in 2009, there hadn't been a discussion in my family, in my community online or in school about it all. I had noticed words to describe what I was going through, I was just paralyzed with sadness. At the time, I honestly thought depression was only something that could happen after someone died or if you were sick, not from heartbreak. Mm. So that might be something she still wouldn't learn today that she was going through withdrawal from love addiction. I began to deteriorate. No, we still might think we're joking. Huh, well, I began to deteriorate. I stopped going to my classes. I stopped eating. I stopped getting out of bed. I would smoke out of a homemade bong made from a Coke bottle and tinfoil and watch the same DVD of Bruce Almighty over and over again. Not because I loved the movie, but because I couldn't pick myself out of bed to change this to a different one. I dropped to 80 pounds and lost my academic standing at Temple. Huh. <clears throat> you know, what do you call that? It took me a year to pull through my bout of depression, two years to stop talking to Malik Daly, and four years to fully get over him. Four years. You know, sometimes people complain if they quit smoking that a year or two later they still want a cigarette. Sometimes people who quit heroin a couple years later think, huh, right now, maybe I would use heroin in the past. But she had an active something for four years. I didn't get handed closure. I earned it second, hour by hour, until I was finally able to shut the door on Malik, forgiving him for hurting me and move on. So <clears throat> that's a you know, that's a bad medication. You know, what's the cure for withdrawal? I 
didn't get handed closure. I earned it second by second, hour by hour, until I was finally able to shut the door in Malik, forgiving him for hurting me and move on. I mean, not hard to fit into a prescription bottle or even into a counseling session, which we try to do in the life process program. We recognize that process and we try to accelerate it. I just spell out uh, more explicitly what you're saying here. Not that I don't understand, but just to make sure, in case people aren't following along. So she got back into her life. Um, she pursued her work. She renewed her self-esteem. She did have all those friends. And here's the second thing she did. Well, she got a job at an Apple store because she started getting into social memes. And in the interim, she picked up some technical know-how. Let, let me pull back just a little bit. Let me go back a little bit in the past. You have been criticized, ostracized sometimes for um, juxtaposing or saying that love addiction is an addiction. Love could be an addiction. And at the same time, as this is kind of obvious to anybody who's been in a destructive relationship, they just may not call it addiction. You're saying not only is love an addiction, it's the worst addiction. I mean, you have, when you're addicted to a substance, you have to negotiate with yourself about how you're going to use that substance or not in your life where it has a place. And a relationship addiction, you have a person that you either that's either responding back to you, you have different interests, uh, you, or a person that you expect to respond and, and doesn't, you hold out for it, and it can be really destructive. And what you're describing here is a period of actual withdrawal from a, a relationship that she had formed that had become destructive and it's created this experience that she's having a hard time recovering from. So if you if you do consider it, if you can follow it all the way through and you consider this, it's the same process as any other addiction, then you might say, why would it make sense that there would be medications that kind of solve one addiction to drugs? What would it be that would be the medication that solves this love addiction and withdrawal? So that I just wanted to spell it out clearly. What, well, you're not going to get Exxon or... Uh... Lovetrol. <laughs> um I, I guess the number one answer would be antidepressants, but yeah, that's right. not addiction. I mean, another issue that I thought of while you're bringing this up is she seems to still talk to Malik from time to time. Mm. But one, que one concrete question you would get, which is related to this, is, well, do I have, well, obviously, one issue is, well, I'm not going to give up men, sex, and love, or part, you know, women, whatever. <clears throat> because I had an addictive relationship. So abstinence, the ridiculousness of abstinence comes up here, as well as what you're pointing out is, well, what drug, if even um, Nora Volko now says, well, there is a parallel love addiction. Um, what drug are you going to take for that? Of course, they made that whole movie about that. Can you remember the title of it? Sunshine's in it. Do you know that movie? Uh, where they erase your memory of your former lover. Eternal, <clears throat> eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Is that what it is? The Jim Carrey movie. Yeah. Yeah. He's an unbelievable, and also stars. I think Kate Winslet's in it. Is that right? It's been a while okay, since I've yeah. seen it. Yeah, I think so. It's a mind-mending movie. Yeah. It's like, okay, how do you get over that? Let's erase your memory, and it makes you think. Well, wait a second. Can you do that? And right. Right. Is that, is that really a solution? Um, and the other thing it raises, which would be a specific question a client would raise, 
can I ever talk to that individual the again? Specific person, I, right? In other words, I'm not going to um, give up men or women or whatever. So here she's got a new date. We walked, and this is her date. We walked into the bar where there was a trivia night happening, something I'd never experienced. Uh, she's wearing an Apple store, and this is her white supervisor. So it's a different lifestyle than she grew up with. It seemed like the kind of thing white people do in movies. <laughs> but now I got why. <clears throat> it was a perfect conversation started. The night was incredible, magical even. So when he invited me back to his place, I was not only game, I was practically running to the bedroom. We had some more beers, which led to making out, which led to sex. And right, so, you know, her mother might not read this, like reading this. <laughs> and mothers around the world and fathers around the world might like reading this um it involves sex and beer but i hear sometimes things like this happen and you know we could sort of say well let's eliminate beer <clears throat> and it's associated with sex and you can't just meet a guy and go on a date and have sex with him well, there's a lot of things that no parent manual accepts and some of these things entail, entail public health the beer yep. drinking and sex part but you know they're going on and this is my extremely thoughtful person after that we were inseparable he and i spent every moment we could together work and otherwise during that time joshua introduced me to so much he loved to cook and made me all sorts of snacks i never would have tried he took me camping for the first time and show me just how beautiful the earth can be. He in even introduced me to Bob Marley. Strange, right? I mean, you would think I would have been into Marley by then, having been both a college student and a weed smoker. Joshua also introduced me to good weed. I was smoking Reggie before that, as well as Game of Thrones, disc golf, actual good sex, and my own beauty. So there's a bunch of things in there that mental professionals, health professionals, and college counselors might have different reactions to. Hmm. He upgraded my appreciation of marijuana. I don't know where people would come out on that, but you know, if one thinks of Carl Hart, you know, drug use for grown-ups. She's, I, I think, at this point, she's twenty-two, maybe. <clears throat> uh, good sex. We'll just leave that. This is a you know, general publication podcast, and my own beauty. And that, you know, a, a whole separate thing about memes is she, she's a short African-American woman who's not, doesn't fit a certain stereotype of beauty. And she has a whole bunch of sections about how those things are communicated to people, to her through advertising and sales and commercials and movies and how she overcame them. So that's, we're not going to get into all that. That's not our department. But he, she broke up with Joshua. So why do we break up, you ask? Our relationship truly felt perfect. But as we all know, relationships are not meant to be perfect. They take work and sometimes long and exhausting conversations. But we were just coasting. Eventually, I was the one who brought the turmoil to our perfect love life because she's going to move to California to be a comedian. And he said, oh, why don't you move in with me? And, you know, some people say, perfect. I love this guy. Well, no, I said, picking up my... California role. I'm planning on moving to Los Angeles. Remember, you know, she had mentioned still 
I was hurt, he said still. I was hurt. It was clear from his reaction that Joshua hadn't taken my goal of moving to Los Angeles seriously. His view of the future had our same uncomplicated relationship in it. While my view of the future consisted of me embarking on a successful comedy career, wherever the world would take me. These two views, it turned out, could not coexist. So <clears throat> she had to get on, on uh, overcome love withdrawal before. Are you once an addict, always an addict? You know, if you become addicted to alcohol and then heroin, will you go through extreme withdrawal from each of them? The answer for her is no. Unlike my first relationship, I could reconcile with the breakup quickly and move on. And that's because he didn't play with my feelings at all. When he broke up with me, he told me that he didn't want to stand in the way of pursuing my dreams. And because of that, things had to end between us. He didn't see the point in standing in my way or stressing me out or keeping me from having a relationship with someone who could best support me. Now, I happen to be aware she has a fiance now. So the title of the chapter is My Three Loves. So I thought we were going to go from Malik to Joshua to her fiance, but you don't. My support, my affair with my affair with comedy began years before my romantic love. It was truly my first love and will truly be my last. How do you interpret that? So she's sort of saying, well, she has a fiance. Okay? I guess she's, I'm sure she's in love with him. <clears throat> but her dealing with, which gets back to your question, <clears throat> relationship withdrawal is when you you pick it up you're to define is purpose she had she probably loves her fiance i'm sure she does she also has a passion and a purpose in her life that transcends uh the ups and downs of relationships and i think that she can't not follow that i mean that's the best antidote for any problem that could occur along the way in terms of her any addictions including relationships now <clears throat> I, you know, I wonder how our fiance reacts to that. I, uh, Robert Zemeckis made a movie in pursuit of happiness and I'm the last scene in the movie. And I talk about people using drugs and alcohol, they've done them forever, a little bit of a preview of Carl. And then I say, you know, and sometimes people, and how do people avoid going off the deep end? And I quoted Freud and everybody laughed because I said, well, he did it in German, but I don't remember the German word. Yeah, right. And, but it's the answer to mental health, just like the answer to how you get in DSM is impairment and distress. Freud's answer to mental health was to love and to work. Working to love, yeah. yeah. I've, I've, as you said, I've thought this before. I watched this documentary. I've, I've thought this before. It's like, how do you really improve on that? <laughs> you know, you can't, there's, you can't really get more fundamentally true than that. And, you know, some people need to realize that. They need to realize that's the answer. They need to realize how to do that. And so, you know, there's room for counselors and light process program. She doesn't, I don't think she mentions therapy at all. I don't recall her mentioning therapy. I don't think McConaughey mentions therapy, really. Mm -hmm. And you so, might actually, you said you wonder how her fiance reacts to that. And it's. You know, it could very well be that, I mean, it sounds like that's what she's saying is that one of the reasons she has the guts to pursue relationships, despite what happened to her last one, is because she has this sort of grounding and, and purpose. So how could she not, 
how could that not be her first it made major, major love? About loving. Right. right. To be able to say, well, I'm on solid ground and, and she respects herself and the second boyfriend appreciated her and that allowed her, you know, part of her gig is to sort of make fun of like, you know, she, when she goes to Hollywood, she describes going to Hollywood parties and she's not a Hollywood party type person. And I'll tell you that um, recently <clears throat> restrictions have been lifted from the global pandemic we've had. And I, it's been 15 months since I played live music. And my wife, Samantha, and I were discussing that since I was about 20 years old, I haven't gone a month without playing a, a live show somewhere. And, and typically, you know, there are many years in there where I'd play every day, every other day somewhere. And so it really was a part of me that was missing. And so... But since then, you know, I've, I've brought on, I work in a school system. I do consulting work. I work for LPP and then I work doing sort of, um, you know, trying to get the message out about LPP. So very busy already. And so I sort of came to her almost like with, it was a bargaining chip saying, you know, I could probably book a show somewhere, but I, I we have responsibilities and I know that maybe I have to receive. You have a young daughter. Right. We have, we have a daughter and I want to be with her and I want to be with my wife and I love my wife. And she said to me, well, we kind of agreed to this when we got married. Music is very important to you, so let's just make it work. And that's, I think that kind of mimics this relationship that you're talking about in this memoir, where if this is, there are certain passions that I have that are non-negotiable. It's just that, that I do them, that, that I love them. The negotiation part is how it works out in the context of my other involvements and relationships. And do I have people in my life who accept them? And when you uh, said to me, well, we can do this podcast at this time or that time because I'm doing a couple of gigs, mm. I had, you know, I rushed through all the things you said. I said, well, gosh, he's been doing this forever. He had he gave it up or wasn't doing it much. And now he's returned to it. And then I thought, huh, he's got a lot on his plate, you know, but then as you, what, you know, your wife said, you know, I understand that, you know, uh, without, you know, she didn't like make you write a contract, right. <laughs> have certain obligations, you know, to me and your daughter and being around the house, whatever those are, but, you know, I respect both your purpose, I respect and love it, and, you know, also I respect your ability you know that i'm going to possibly remind you of about your other connections and obligations and there are certain things that she has that are similar where i say well you have to go do it and we'll make it work and that is why we have that's why i love her more than any other person that i could love that's why our relationship keeps growing and and it you know because of her i'm allowed to do all the things that give me purpose otherwise and because of my purpose i'm allowed to it gives me the ability to build a kind of a growing relationship. So there you go. There's the MAT for love addiction. So um, uh, you're answering a question about family and you want to, you know, recently you've been doing some podcasts with a man named Sean Kensing and the last one you did was around family and it raised some questions for you that you wanted to kind of introduce now. So why don't you take over exactly sort of now? 
Sure. I, there were some things that Sean asked and then I replied to, and I think you've heard my responses to them. And truly, um, Sean Kenzie, the person interviewing me, he doesn't give me like a show note ahead of time. He just has comes with questions and I kind of answer him on the spot the best I can. One of those things that I could go back and if I had to write it, I'd probably write a better one. But I just want to get your take on some of these things and maybe bring them up for discussion. One of the things that he asked more elegantly that I put it here is something like, um, what do you do when the motivation for the person that you're doing clinical work with? Let's say it's a, it's a family dynamic. So it's a mother who sends her son to therapy. Um, he wanted to know, where do you even start when the, the son might be coming in for one set of problems that he thinks are problems? The mother is sending the son to, to speak with you or paying for the son to speak to you because she thinks that there are a whole different set of problems. Or maybe the the son's coming to you and saying, there is no problem. My mom just wants me to do this. Um, insofar as I'm speaking to everybody in the family, how do I make those connect? How do I be honest with everybody and make those connections? And I just want to say, watching you and Sean Gensing, we call it the devil's advocate because Sean sort of always, he's more LPP than not. I mean, he's not a 12-stepper for sure. And he wasn't a 12-steps. Sort of tongue-in-cheek, yeah. And so he's going in another direction and he's like throwing out questions to you for you to parry. And it's a real working counselors. What do you do with? Mm -hmm. And so that's, you're, you're talking about an example of that. So can you take it a little bit further where you two came up with that, where you two went on with that? Uh, sure. I, I'm interested to get your take on things, but I'll uh, think where we landed was, this is because there's different people. There are different conversations to be had and okay. People can have different ideas about what problems are. But one thing that's always going to be true is even if the prop, there's always something to solve and there's always movement to make in the positive direction. Even if someone's coming to you and saying, I mean, there is no problem. I just can't get my mom off my back. Well, we could kind of bring it out through motivational interviewing. It sounds like there's the problems that your mom is saying are problems don't really speak to you but you are talking about the problem of you and your mom's you know uh communication i want to talk about that so there's something there to start with that case was my mom's a jehovah's witness Mm -hmm. you're not allowed to date or drink and she had brothers who died so i've seen cases where a young person is put in rehab based on that alone right and, you know, clinically, you would say, well, the mother sees that as a problem. That's one example. You know, obviously, there are a lot of examples where, you know, the kid's screwing up. And so you're negotiating, partly you're negotiating that communications to make it more effective in terms of what she did. Mom, I'm okay. Versus mom's saying, you know, you're in this family, you need to do something. There's obligations you have. And you're a person who's seen 10 million times something that everybody knows, at Sean knows. Yelling at people and punishing them has a limited applicability, effectiveness. Absolutely. And the thing I think you even put in quotes from the memoir, uh, I forget the woman's name i'm sorry the memoir we were just talking about Qu- quinta brunson that memoir you were just discussing 
she talked about even even in our most kind of distressing destructive communication there's still a subtext there which is i love you and i care about you and that's that really speaks to what i try to do all the time i think that there's uh kind of a sub-communication going on with loving families all the time that they're maybe just trying to make bring to the surface and make a little bit more clear for each other. Um, I even recently, I, I can't give information, but I'll just say that uh, a very famous uh, writer that you and I both know recommended me to counsel a family uh, recently. And, and that was the case. It was, the, it was a child whose parents wanted to, him to talk to me he didn't quite get why I play devil's advocate with him. Well, let's talk about, let's put yourself in their shoes. What, why might, why do you think they might be saying that you're here? And then I asked him about, well, what are your interpretations of this? And the question back to him is, well, what needs to get communicated to your parents? Do you think to make them understand your perspective or make it so that they're not going to just not. The thing about OPP is sometimes people come in and they and it's for themselves or their adults do I have an addiction? And what we try to do is track back to their actual problems. Well, you're here, you have some concerns and some things aren't working. Can you just tell me what you're worried about and what problems you have? And you do the same thing with that, say, let's say it's a young boy or whatever, young adult. Hey, well, you tell me what problems you see happening. Well, you're here for starters and you wouldn't prefer not to be here you're having clashes with your parents is that a problem and then you logically unravel that back to what the problem is right right and you know you do it in a calm you're not labeling anybody or anything you're not saying well you're addicted or, which an awful lot of child therapies oh you've got this or that but you're an unschooler you're a problem solver you know, it's always possible. I'm thinking about the kids I work with in schools now, but it's always possible that the kid is right. Like there's there's a total misinterpretation of what I'm doing as being problematic. Um, but people aren't quite understanding what I'm doing. I think they've taken a different interpretation for some reason. And so just wherever, there's some point where two people need to understand each other in order to build the relationship and move away from me and then stay constructive and collaborative. So it could, that could happen at any point. You're right. You unspool until the knot's untangled. Um, and then there's some wiggle room for, for good communication. And another critical thing in what collaborative is a giant word in your lexicon and therapy work. I, I think it's the same with Sean. You realize your goal is not for you or the therapy program to be a permanent part of the people's existence. They're going to have to function. Mm-hmm in some constructive way with you not in the mix. Right. And that's a really critical thing for a counselor to realize, you know, I'm not here to solve the problems. I'm here to enable people to develop tools to deal with problems, including in their relationship. So there was another question, unless you had any more comments or your own insights on that question, um, just let me know if you do. But there's a, there's a subsequent question that Sean was asking about, and I think he gave an example of um, a parent asking about consequences. Well, what is there a consequence to set? And so the example was uh, I, my 16-year-old who just got his license 
is smoking all the time. We don't think he's being honest with us about when he is smoking uh, marijuana, mar- marijuana, marijuana, sorry. And, and we, we need him to be, but so because we've caught him and he's not being honest, we're taking the car away. And the only time he's able to drive is when we know he's not smoking marijuana. Um, so he says, you know, some people ask, will ask him, Sean says, some people will ask him, all right, we took the car away. Is that the right thing to do? And so he, that I was, think he, gen- think he genuinely wanted to know, what do I tell these people? And I think he really was trying to uh, source out. My response to him, uh, now this is, I'm eager to get your response on this, but my response was, I, well, you said un, unspooling. I like to know that, or I like to help people think about why they're sitting consequences. And is it, is this a logical consequence? Is it something that fits the, um, the underlying behavior that you wish to go away? And why is it that you want the behavior to go away? So you mean you're trying to, can reality therapy, uh, motivational learning is trying to t- tie the person directly into the world. Right. You're trying to make him, in this case, realize that his mother might be whatever and overworrying. On the other hand, there's some real things in there. Sometimes I've <laughs> noticed, you know, sometimes when you're concerned about a loved one, time feels of the essence. So you'll make a decision that you hope stamps out some behavior in the moment without a great contingency plan you know without a great plan moving forward so i i also suggested to sean you know you if you broaden your scope a little bit think about you have a 16 year old who you want to adopt some responsibility are you actually you know if you take a car away is it possible that there are going to be situations that arise in the future where you're actually limiting his ability to generate further responsibility because you've taken this thing away so it's a it's a balancing act between a safety concern you wouldn't want to take uh, her mother didn't want her driving to a session where she was practicing, you know, improvisational art. Right. And now, you know, whatever she is, she's a universal multi-million dollar star doing that. Right. So. There's a harm reduction element here. Like it's, at some, how long is it going? Is this consequence supposed to work? You're worried about this person smoking marijuana and driving because they're impaired and they're driving, and that's a safety concern. But that's something that's worth being communicated. That somehow needs to get sorted out and be able to be communicated with the child and then the child back to them and sort out some sort of an arrangement about what's going to happen. At some level, there's going to be a harm reduction element because once that person is 18 or even before they're 18, if they have their a driver's license, a valid driver's license, the you know, parent can't be looking over their kid the entire time. Eventually, that person's going to. It's likely that person's going to go ahead and drive, whether or not there are these limits set on them. Maybe it's not going to be their parents' car or the car that they bought with them. So, you know, you have to sort of understand what are the what kinds of things might help you get your kid to trend in a more positive direction or, or get closer to your an understanding of what your safety concerns are. Um, then you'll become a self-sustaining mechanism. Exactly. So if, it, if there's a, if there's a no driving clause, I'm always interested to hear. Uh, there's no right answer, by the way. It's like, there's no, 
you can't say, yeah, that's a good idea or no, that's not a good idea. That's what the kid deserves or that's not what they deserve. It's more, how does this work into the person becoming a self-powered machine? No, I don't think you're in danger of becoming as big a media star as uh, either of the people we've been talking about. No danger at all. (laughs) A couple of people have expressed admiration at your calm, rational. Somebody, uh, don't blush, I called you brilliant, uh, one of the other coaches. How how did you develop, it involved detachment. It's a non-judgmental commitment to interact how did you were you born that way or were you a kind of a pretty nonchalant infant or what how do you do that how do i not get riled up at things i don't know how do you take both sides how do you avoid accusing people how do you say you know i'm on your team let's think this out together and you can do that with two people you know they might get you involved in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Is there any insight you can give to how you do that? You want to know the real reason? Is um, yeah. this is sort of like an Uncle Oscar story? Because it's. I think there's a real reason, but there's something probably bubbling up before beforehand. Um, so I don't know if you remember. I interviewed um, um, Christopher Hitchens, brilliant writer's brother, Peter Hitchens, slightly less brilliant, but still very prominent in in the UK. And he and I wanted to talk about addiction. And I, I, he had interviewed the guy that used to play Chandler on the show Friends. And this guy, Chandler, was talking about it, how it's a disease and how stupid this guy. And I thought, well, this uh, Peter Hitchens is, is wrong. He's a very moral, blamey kind of a person. But I bet that I could have a good conversation with him because in some ways we're in the same ballpark and I wonder if I could add some new language to his vocabulary. And so he and I had a discussion, which he thought was supposed to be a debate. I think he's kind of used to, maybe he's sort of like you in a way, he's used to, if people want to discuss something with them and disagree with them, they're trying to whatever, uh, shit on him <laughs> or whatever. And, and uh, so anyway, we had this phone discussion and he, I mean, he wouldn't let me have an inch. He just, it wasn't a good debate. It was a lot of straw men and red herrings and um, ad hominem attacks. And I thought, wow, this is devastating. And then he propagated, we propagated all over social media. And then I got these, you know, uh, messages, uh, you idiot. Oh, how could you? And I thought, well, this is, this is crazy. And I don't know what came over me, but there was one of Peter Hitchens fans who was making these comments. And I think it was just on a whim. I said, Hey, if you want to come talk to me, you could do the interview with me. Let's see how you do. He said, well, fine, I will. And then because he decided to do it, now he was committed. We gave each, we exchanged email addresses and we were emailing back and forth. And me, this guy and I realized we have a lot in common. And so we had this discussion and I realized that people are a little more comp. In some ways, people are much more complicated than you can give them credit for, for just sound bites they make on social media or whatever. And in some ways people are so much alike it's astonishing you know the things that make human beings tick are so similar and that kind of opened my eyes to um the reason that dialectic is important and to hear people out and to get so a bigger on the picture one hand being asked to deal with the chandler person right and then you were being asked to deal with peter hitchens dealing with the chandler person right Is that right so that uh, right, right. You have a coaching exercise. I 
when you, in rehab, we'd take three people, we'd have one person express a problem, we'd have one person practice something called motivational interviewing where they were only allowed to ask questions, and then we'd have a third person observing them. Where, and the biggest trick, of course, would be the third person would be coaching the coach, and he would, the danger was he or she would say, oh, you're an idiot, you're not doing it right. But obviously, that person would have to interact with the second person and say, do you think that was the most, was that really a question? Right, right. And so what, I, what, doing what that role, that meta role. What happened is just, I, it broadened my awareness to what I was doing in schools already. Um, because I would be very defensive. I think well, the show that I did at the time was even called Young Justice, which is a silly title, which was supposed to somehow bring out the fact that I don't think young people are treated appropriately in the education system at some times. And so I felt like I was a real advocate for kids, but at the same time, I was at a table with the teachers and adults and had to be friendly with them. So I try to be friendly when I'm in the presence of a person. And so that whole thing opened my eyes to that. I do this role all the time. I'm sort of code switching between being a child or even a, a dysfunctional acting kind of a child and a teacher in a school who more or less wants to do the best by the students in the school and who aren't communicating. And so that, as you say, in a, in a clinical role as well, there's a third party who's supposed to see things a little more objectively, but to understand two sides of a situation. So I guess the final, let's, we can close it out by saying you can't give the key to how you learn this. Yeah. <laughs> and I see Bill Miller that. talk about how he became famous for motivational interviewing. People observed him and they said, you know what you're doing? This is, it's kind of interesting. You sort of almost discovered it about yourself. It's mm. sort of like, oh, isn't this interesting how I handle this? It's almost like you were watching yourself. So you don't know the, you know, platonic mold that got that way for you. But you are a little bit aware of what it looks like and how you do it and how it might work with other people. Indeed. Now, um, I, I want to move on from... Thank you for your input, by the way. It's always good to, we've got two people discussing the program and then we've got the founder of the program sort of being able to give a, a meta. Did I say this already? Or just to see two human beings, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's a ton of podcasts like this to see two practicing helpers, whatever you guys are. Uh, Sean has his own, now it's mainly online practice, but he used to be a supervisor and a counselor counselor in some standard addiction program just to see the two of you beat out or work through typical issues where neither of you resorts to a disease or um, denial where you're just talking about the nitty-gritty of and both of you have the basic same assumptions that responsibility has to end up with a person going forward right. I don't know I just find it fascinating and enjoyable to me that's hit media all right thank you all right amigo have a very happy sunday and thank you stanton for for a good dialogue